in, in reflecting about what to speak about tonight. I, I thought of beginning with a reflection from the Buddha. And I wanted to bring it, talk about it, read it, because it's a very personal reflection from the Buddha. It's about his life before he was the Buddha, and he's talking to the community about what happened to him, about what influenced him, what touched him or moved him from his life before being the Buddha to his seeking enlightenment. And he says, bhikkhus, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from the cold, from the heat, from the dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. During the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace. Buddha was having a good time. I I hope you get the picture. He's got a beautiful, beautiful circumstances, beautiful conditions he finds himself in. Totally as protected as one could be with as much delight as one could have at that time being an Indian prince. But he says, even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an untaught ordinary person, subject to aging, not beyond aging, seeing another who is aged, becomes horrified or humiliated or disgusted oblivious that they themselves are also subject to aging, if I, who am subject to aging, not beyond aging, were to be horrified or humiliated or disgusted on seeing another person who is aged, that would not be fitting for me. And as I notice this, the typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. The typical young person's intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And he goes on to repeat this again, talking about about illness. When an untaught ordinary person subject to illness, not beyond illness, sees another who is ill, they are horrified or humiliated or disgusted, oblivious to the fact that they too are subject to illness. And he then reflects on himself, on his own relationship to illness. And if I were to be horrified or humiliated or disgusted on seeing another person who is ill, that would not be fitting for me. 
And as he, as he says, as I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. The healthy person's intoxication with health entirely dropped away. And even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, he had another reflection, another contemplation. And it was the contemplation of death. And that if one, if he were to, were to be horrified or humiliated or disgusted on seeing another person who is dead, that would not be fitting for him. And fitting in this case doesn't mean polite or right. It would not, it means he wouldn't be seeing the truth. He wouldn't be seeing the truth, the actuality of things. And as he noticed this, the living person's intoxication with life entirely dropped away. So the three intoxications with youth, with health, and with life entirely dropped away for the Buddha. So it brings a few questions for us to reflect on. The first question is, how did you hear this? What do you hear him saying about youth, health, life? Because I've read this quote from the Buddha a number of times, and one of the things that often happens is people think he's saying there's something wrong with being young or misguided about health or not, not so good about life. But all he's saying is the intoxication with youth, health, life fell away. He doesn't say not to enjoy our youth or appreciate our health or to love our life. He doesn't say anything like that. He, keeps, he talks about the intoxication. And so then the question becomes, well, what is it that's intoxicating about youth or health or life? What is the intoxication? And we all, you know, know what intoxication means. It means we, there's something we've taken that's, uh, that doesn't allow us to see clearly, that clouds the mind, clouds the senses, doesn't allow for clarity doesn't allow us to be with things as they are, creates a distance from us and reality. So the intoxication the Buddha is pointing at, I believe, is the intoxication with permanence. That when we're young, it's very hard to actually believe we will be old. And when we're healthy, we tend to think it's going to last. And even though we all know we're going to die, some part of us doesn't actually believe it. That there's an intoxication with permanence, that we're attached to permanence. We're attached to, I I believe I said this the other night in my talk, stasis. 
that things are static. Even though we know that there's nothing in the world that is static, that everything is changing, everything is in flux, everything is unfolding, everything is impermanent. All conditioned things arise and pass. We know this, we hear it. But we don't, we may not fully know it in our bones, in our cells, to the core of our consciousness. So another question this text brings up for me is, what allowed the intoxication with permanence to fall away? How did that happen? He wasn't meditating. He wasn't trying to get rid of anything. He was contemplating reality. He was contemplating reality. He was investigating reality. He was considering the reality of what it is to be ill, what it is to be well, what it is to be young and then old, what it is to be alive and then dead. And in his contemplation, as he contemplated, there was some understanding that came that allowed the intoxication to fall away. You notice he doesn't say he let go of it. He said it dropped away. And I believe it dropped away through his penetrating insight, his clarity of mind, his understanding of the truth. And in one of the suttas he says, this committed life is lived for the sake of seeing things, seeing into things and understanding them. That we practice to see into the nature of reality, the nature of what's here, the truth of what's here. And then to see what happens, how that understanding impacts us, how that understanding may free us, how that understanding may allow things to drop away. So the next question that arose for me in contemplating this is, and I, may, I said it already, why didn't he say let go? Oh, I let go of the, the intoxication with youth, or I let go of the intoxication with life. He doesn't say that. He said it dropped away. And it doesn't mean he, he uses letting go many times in the suttas. But here he's saying it dropped away. And, and one of the themes that we're, we're working with here, that we're practicing with, and that I, everybody's mentioned in some form or another, is letting go, is not holding on, not clinging. So how does it happen? How does letting go happen? How does falling away happen? For me personally, letting go happens when I'm not attached. And it's really easy. 
In other words, you know, I want to do something and John wants to do something else and I want to do what I want to do and he wants to do what he wants to do and I say, okay, I'll let go. You, you do it your way and then I'll do mine later or something. I'm not really attached. I may want what I want. I may have my preference. But to let go easily like that, it's not a big deal. When I really want what I want, when I really am sitting and I want to have a good state of samadhi and I have a bad state of samadhi, and I say, okay, I'll let go, but I keep trying, I keep trying, I keep being tense, tight. I'm actually, then I'm attached and I can't let go. There's a cathexis, it's a nice psychological word, it means that something's been imbued with some energy and it's not being released. It's not dropping away. Any of you had this experience with? <laughs> right? You like, you know, some something's here and you say, I'm just gonna let go of it now. And it's just it doesn't let go of us. Like, you know, the alien, like remember how it <laughs> clamped on to the guy? It's some something's happening. And where it's clear, like, this may not be the best thing to feel or experience, you know, on some level. And we think, oh, I'd rather, but it won't let go. Or we're mad at somebody and we think, okay, I'll just let go of it. I hate that person. <laughs> I'm going to kill him. Oh, no. You know, it doesn't matter. It's 10 years ago. I'm just going to let go. <laughs> Shit. Those assholes. I, I actually had this very strongly last year on uh, a retreat. I was sitting for a month at the Forest Refuge, and uh, and I'd had a, a, a long, uh, difficult experience with a friend of mine, and it was it was painful, and it was it was it was dukkha. It was dukkha, dukkha between us, and. But I got to the forest refuge, and I was pissed. I was just pissed. And I'm, I'm a good yogi, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the let it rip guy. Okay, not a problem, let it rip. And the anger came, the anger came, and then I got really settled, and I, samadhi and this and that. I was doing some samadhi practice, and I'd go into some very deep states of samadhi, and then I would just get pissed and be angry. And even, I remember one time, and so I could go and settle for a day or two, and then it would come back, like, where the hell is that coming from? What is that? And then at some point I remember sitting, I'm sitting, and I'm actually very calm, and all of a sudden his image and his, you know, and it was like I was lifted out, up out of my seat, and I just, the energy was so strong, the anger was so strong, and I just went right, I just walked, I couldn't not, I couldn't sit, I just walked, and I was furious in the walking, and, and I'm letting it happen, because mostly I trust that totally. But it didn't go away, it didn't go away. It was like, you know, I trust it, and I just want to honor it and all that, but I still wanted it to go away, and it, it wouldn't stop. And uh, it, it actually did relax quite a bit at a certain point on the retreat. Um, but after I came home, it came back. And then one, what happened was, 
at some point, and, I, and so I'm still trying to allow it and, and keep allowing all the conditions that are there, all the feelings that are there, all the hurt that's there, all the feeling of not being seen or heard or understood. And, not, and I'm trying to understand all of it. I'm trying to let it all come forward. And at some point that's happening. I was actually lying in my bed and I was just staying with it. And, I, and, and really what happened is I surrendered to it in a way I hadn't. I'd been practicing with it, but I hadn't totally surrendered to it. And as I surrendered to it, something relaxed. And I remembered something he told me about himself, about his history, and about his suffering. And this compassion arose in my heart. And it was the end of the anger. It was the end of the anger. And it was nothing that I could do. I didn't do that. What, when that happened, there was some grace of some sorts where this relaxation, the surrender happened, which I didn't do the surrender. It just happened after all this struggle with it. And then, and then with the surrender and this kind of relaxation came this memory. And then with the memory, the, I wasn't trying to be compassionate with him. The compassion came. It came with the understanding, with the seeing, with the, actually with the seeing of his suffering. And I wasn't trying to see his suffering in order to be compassionate. It just happened. Now, there were some things I did do that I believe allowed that all to happen, that allowed the anger to drop away. And I think it's, it's helpful to consider what, it, what qualities they are that support the dropping away or support the understanding of practice that's about release. And there are a number of qualities. I'll say a few. One is awareness, mindfulness, paying attention. That I was committed to paying attention to what was actually happening for me, even when I didn't like it, even when I wanted it to go away. Not only what was happening in terms of the anger, but what was happening in terms of my relationship to the anger, the wanting it to go away, to pay attention to all of that without judging it at all, without having some judgment, oh, I'm a Buddhist teacher, I shouldn't be angry. You know, that, that's none of the, the judgment doesn't help. If it helped, I would encourage it. <laughs> I would. I'm, I have no pride in using whatever helps. It's the thing that I've seen helps the, the least, if at all. So there's this paying attention that we've been cultivating here, just to pay attention to not, in some sense, just to any, anything, but to what's true, to what's true. I think early on somebody said, maybe it was Gil even in the first day, that to practice mindfulness, we have to be devoted to the truth. You can't be mind. I couldn't be mindful of feeling compassionate for my friend when I hated him. It's just not true. You, you ever try to be mindful of feeling good when you feel like crap? 
It doesn't work. Mindfulness demands of us to see what is here and what is true. It's not asking us to be a good Buddhist or a good Dharma student or a good you know, man or woman, boy or girl. It's actually asking us to be real, to see what's true here and to begin to trust that truth. And of course, you know, Dharma is translated as truth. To trust that truth to take us to deeper and deeper truths. That it will lead, the truth itself will lead us to the truth. It can't, it can't be any other way. And so the awareness and then the knowing and the commitment or the devotion to the truth, to what's actually here. And that devotion, as we've all been talking about, is impossible without kindness, without care, without compassion. Can't, can't, can't be done. That there's a kind of acceptance and respect and um, reverence that we can have for what's true, even when we don't like it, even when it's not what we wanted, even when it's not our preference or our idea of what's supposed to be happening. And so again, in, that, in the service of that, let me read you the poem that Sharda read the other night, that beautiful Rumi poem, where Rumi says, if God said, if God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. There would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not one act I would not bow to. So much of what we're doing here is learning how to let ourselves be. Be with what's true. Be with the reality of this uh, magical and mysterious unfoldment that we call John or Eugene or Sharda or Gil or whatever name you want to put on it. To really begin to respect how unique this moment is, this heart, this mind, this being. And then the last piece, although there are surely many others, but the last piece I'll mention is our presence, our hereness, our willingness to, to let our, uh, not just to know what's happening, not just to be aware of what's happening, but to actually let what's happening touch us, or to let our consciousness mingle with the, what we know. So they're not, it's not from a distance that the knowing happens. It's a direct knowing. It's an immediate knowing. You know, the word to know, knowledge, comes from gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which means a knowledge of spiritual mysteries. And this knowledge is, of spiritual mysteries is only revealed to us if we're willing to let go into the experience completely, to surrender completely, to know it completely, to understand it through the direct knowing. 
there's an Indian teacher named Devi. She's a tantric teacher in India. And she's talking with someone about the question of letting go. How do we let go? And somebody said to her, I've had trouble letting go. And she said, that's normal. Everybody wants to let go, but how do you let go if you don't hold things, if you don't touch things in full consciousness with a totally open heart? The first thing is having the experience of touch, of profound contact with things, with the universe, without mental commotion. In other words, everything begins there, touching the universe deeply. If you let go before touching deeply, that can bring on mental turmoil. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. What she's describing here, well, I'll continue and then comment. Many beginning yogis make this mistake. They let go before taking hold. The heart is never opened. They enter into a sterile void and remain imprisoned. She's She's describing what in psychology they would talk about as a kind of uh, um, schizoid relationship or a mental letting go, doing it just with our minds, not actually touching our experience, not letting the experiences permeate us, not letting them fill us, not knowing them completely, but seeing, oh, it's good to let go, so I'm going to let go of it. And it's actually a distancing. It's a distancing, and it's a distancing. And then a certain kind of emptiness comes, but it's not the emptiness that's full. It's not a fullness. As she said, it's a sterile void. And they enter into a sterile void and remain in prison. When you touch deeply, you no longer need to let go. That occurs naturally. So there's an alchemy here that we're pointing at, an alchemy where we want to do our best to set up the conditions to turn lead into gold. But you can't turn lead into gold. It's magic that turns lead into gold. Something happens here that we don't do We don't do the Dharma. The Dharma does us. We are giving ourselves, we're offering ourselves to the Dharma so that it can show us, it can teach us, it can free us, it can liberate us. And then we learn the art of being as skillful as possible in that process in mixing the different chemicals to turn the lead into gold. And so we do learn a certain kind of letting go or maybe a certain kind of uh, holding lightly or letting be so that the alchemy of our being can transform from one of greed and aversion and delusion to one of peacefulness and openness and freedom, and love. William Blake, who so beautifully described the whole process in some way of what it means to let go, he said, to let go of our attachments. He said, 
He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. It's a beautiful metaphor, eternity's sunrise. It's very close to the deathless, the understanding of the deathless in Buddhism. So there's another word, quality of practice, I'd also like to bring into our contemplation tonight. And it's the little bit the contemplation of renunciation. And you know, mostly renunciation gets a bad rap in our culture. We don't really want to renounce anything. We like to, we want to have our liberation and eat it too basically. But it doesn't have to be a negative. Renunciation is not necessarily a negative. There's a few ways I'd like you to consider it. One is from Pema Chodron, who talked about it. She said when she was taught about it, she was taught it had to do with letting go of holding back. Renunciation is letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. And so what we're renouncing is our intoxication with the past, or our intoxication with the future, or our intoxication with our beliefs, or our intoxication with our fantasies and imaginings about who other people are and our intoxication with our fantasies and imagining about who we are so that we can not hold back, so we can come into each moment in a wholehearted way, a full way, a complete way, to give ourselves completely. She says, renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Pema can be very direct that way, she said. (laughs) Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. Suzuki Roshi, when he used the term, he talked about renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but seeing that we can't hold on to any of them. We're renouncing our intoxication with owning. We see the fluidity of life, of reality. Have you seen it in these days that we've been here? Have you seen it pour out from who knows where and end up here right now? These four or five days we've been together, sometimes I just see it like liquid almost or like a sand uh, clock. 
the reality's just poured out to here, and it's pouring right now. This in, ungraspable moment that's right here. And we begin to see we don't own anything, not one thing. In the Western, in the Christian tradition, this is described as mystical poverty. And the understanding is that, that the, 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 the renunciation of poverty, right, of taking the vows of poverty, are just an outer reflection of an inner truth. And the inner truth is we don't own anything. We don't own, not only don't we own the things of the world that we may steward for a while, our homes or our computers or our whatever it is, whatever it is we have, our cars and our bicycles and our things that we do and our roles and our jobs and our you know, parents and our children. We, we steward all these things, but we don't own any of them. Not only we don't own that, we don't own anything that's supposedly inside us. We don't own our thoughts. We don't own our feelings. We can't keep a feeling when we want it to stay, and we can't make a feeling go away when we want it to go away. We don't own anything. And when we start to come into alignment with this truth, that letting go partly is beginning to understand at a very deep level that there is nothing. It's not, it's not even, sometimes people get nervous when you say, oh, there's nothing to hold on to. Like they, all of a sudden they can scramble a little bit. It's like, oh, shit, there's nothing to hold on to. But you don't have to worry. There's never been anything you could hold on to. Holding on is dukkha. It's not understanding the way things are. And so when we begin to let go or surrender, or when things drop away, then what happens? What have you seen when your suffering has dropped away here? What have you seen when the dukkha has stopped, even for a moment, when you're attachment or clinging or holding or identification has relaxed. What's revealed itself to you? When letting go happens, I believe there's something innate that reveals itself. With the absence of clinging, there's something inherent here, innate or natural. I'm, I'm actually reading you some of the some of the other ways that innate is talked about. Something the word inborn, uh, uh, inborn or inherent or natural or intrinsic, reveals itself. Something intuitive reveals itself. Something unlearned shows itself. Something. In, in the blood, it said, or hardwired. That there's something here that when, when we let go of everything, if we let go of everything, there would still be something. And this something, I believe, is really good. 
Gil talked about it a little in his talk. He said, uh, he's, he talked about an innate intelligence. And that's one way to talk about it. Um, the Buddha was actually very cautious with words. He was cautious for a good reason, which is it's easy to start to concretize words. Words can be intoxicating. Words can be liberating and words can be intoxicating. They can start to seem like they're it. They're what we're talking about. And yet what, when the words are liberating, they're pointing at something that's alive and true and real and totally ungraspable, totally unfixable, totally ecstatic, not static. The ecstatic reality of this moment. But the Buddha, sometimes he did use some nice words. He said, he talks about attachment, letting go. He says, luminous is this mind. Luminous is this mind. Brightly shining, but it gets colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, so they do not cultivate this mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments, the obscurations, the veils that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of this mind. When we understand this, then we cultivate the conditions that allow this mind, this luminosity, to reveal itself. And this luminosity is not simply luminous. It's more than luminous. In the Tibetan tradition, often they talk about one of the goals of practice as rigpa, as realizing the nature of mind. And they talk about the ornamentation of rigpa, the ornamentation of this luminosity. That it's not um, a, a vacuous luminosity. That out of this luminosity comes all the goodness of the, the Buddha nature, of the Buddha reality, of the, uh, uh, the beautiful qualities that the Buddha realized. Now, the Buddha didn't make these qualities up. And he didn't have to hold, keep these qualities, and he didn't own these qualities. But the qualities of heart and mind would show themselves as they met with reality. That when we're in reality, when we're actually present, when the mind is not obscured by greed and anger and aversion and fear and self-concern, then what's here can begin to respond naturally to reality, to what's needed. And this teaching is summed up in a beautiful Zen teaching. Um, when the student goes to the master and says, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? And of course, in Zen, they would never say liberation or freedom or anything like that. And the Zen teacher says, an appropriate response. The goal of a lifetime of practice, an appropriate response. Where does an appropriate response come from? Does it come from us? Or does it come when we're free of the usual ideas and beliefs 
and conditioning and holdings and attachment. But we're here, that something is here. I believe the appropriate response comes when we're present, awake, and we respond. It's not even we respond. Reality responds to reality. Reality responds to reality. If somebody falls down, we reach to pick them up. That's just a natural inclination. But it's not a fixed, it's not a fixed, reified response. Because sometimes somebody falls down and you don't pick them up because they're one and a half and they're learning how to walk and they need to know how to get up by themselves. And so there's not a oh, Buddha quality book of appropriate responses that you want to look at and say, oh, if somebody fell, yeah, now it's time to pick. No, when we're, when we're actually in touch with the reality of what's here, we can respond to the reality of what's here. When this reality is illuminated, it can respond naturally. We don't have to figure it out so much. We can allow the heart to respond with love or with compassion. And sometimes compassion's not needed, then that's not what's there. Where can we, sometimes you're in a situation and it's happy. You don't need to be compassionate. Joy arises because it's beautiful. It's, people are happy. You know, my daughter, this is, this is totally Eugene here, but my daughter just won a little award <laughs> and, and for her acting. And it was like, oh, it's like I was so happy for her. I wasn't compassionate. There's no need to be compassionate. She's not suffering. When she's suffering, I often feel very compassionate. But when there's success, when there's well-being, then joy is a natural response. When there's a need for um, clarity, then clarity comes. When there's a need for uh, um, strength, strength can come. Whatever needs to come, if we're really here, as we awaken, it can come. We don't have to do it so much, just like we don't have to do the letting go. We set up the conditions for the Dharma to reveal itself through this unique, precious human form. The last piece is I'd like to read to you a little more from the woman, Alison Wright, who I, I talked about in the first talk. Remember the woman who had that horrific accident that I described where she'd broken her arm, had been shredded, and her spleen had been sliced in half, and you know she says heart, stomach, intestines were ripped out of place, pushed up into her shoulder, lungs collapsed, etc., she felt like she was, as she worked with the breath, here she's, of course, and she's in somewhere in Laos, in the middle of nowhere, and she worked with her breath, and she felt like the, just the breath and the pain kept her alive, and that she was able to stay present and meditate, and that her training had really, really helped keep her alive. Well, there's more to the story, so I'll continue now a little bit. 
She's, I'll, I'll go from where I ended. She said, I managed to calm myself, slowing my heart rate and bleeding, and I never lost consciousness or went into deep shock. In fact, I never felt so aware, so clear-headed, or completely in the present moment. And then she says that um, she got loaded onto a pickup truck, which jolted along for about an hour to a clinic, a dirt floor room lined with cobwebs, cows grazing outside the doors, and there was no medical care, basically. She said the agony was almost more than I could endure. Then six hours passed. No more help arrived. Opening my eyes, I was surprised to see that darkness had fallen. That's when I became convinced I was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me, a bone-deep peace I could have never imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. And then she goes on. She says, as I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. Let's sit for a minute, please. you all. It'll be about 20 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.